Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment and let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. Today, Clyde Glass is continuing our series, Seeds of Transformation. And coming up next weekend, we have our spring men's breakfast for ages 16 and up. And Clyde's going to be speaking at that, and it'll be a great time of connection around a great breakfast. You can register on Realm or our website. And also coming up on Tuesday, May 2nd, we have a seniors coffee connection. And these are always a great time. And Fernando will be sharing at this one. And you can register in advance on Realm or on our website for that as well. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. If you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you, and you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant. Because God is here in this place, and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to Him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together here and along with those joining together with us online. Great to be with you as we have the gift of coming to God's Word and letting it prompt us towards this meal, this Eucharist meal, the meal of Thanksgiving together. But just before we turn to God's Word, I want to share with you about a cool story. Uh, Our local Walden Starbucks, which is just a couple of blocks that way for us, it's led and managed by Naresh. Some of you know him. And they've just moved a few doors down to a new location where they are. So Naresh called and said, could Southview use our tables and chairs and condiment rack because we're getting new ones for the new location? Now, Naresh didn't know this, but we literally have just been discussing our need for more tables and chairs out in our Cardo Cafe. So after our time of worship here, when you go to the cafe and sit down, enjoy your coffee or tea, you'll see we've been blessed by Naresh and our Walden Starbucks generosity. So I encourage you to go into and maybe go through their new drive-through. What a gift. At their new Walden location and thank Naresh on behalf of all of us in all this. Just so good of them. Yeah. Now, today we are continuing in our new teaching series that we called Seeds of Transformation from the New Testament letter of 1 John. Now, we know that the author John, he was part of really this inner circle of Jesus' three closest disciples, his three closest friends, along with James and Peter. But even beyond that inner circle of three disciples, John had a particularly trusted relationship with Jesus. And that's why scripture refers to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there was something unique about John and his relationship with our Lord. So all of that just to say that when we read these words from John, 
we are hearing from the one who is likely Jesus' closest, dearest friend on earth, who had a uniquely intimate understanding of the heart and teaching and priorities of Jesus our King. Now, as we noted last week, John's purpose in writing this letter was to respond to false teaching that was going around in that church in ancient Asia Minor. And these were really false teachings. They were heresies that threatened the core, creedal tenets of the faith regarding Jesus because they denied the truth that Jesus was truly the Son of God. They denied the truth that Jesus had a fleshly human body and that he went to the cross and there died for our sins. So they were really threatening, these false teachers, the foundations of the faith, which understandably caused these young followers of Jesus across these churches to ask, in the middle of their uncertainties, how do we know who's teaching to follow? And, and how do we live out this faith with one another and with those around us? And what then does this life with Jesus, of following Jesus, look like? So let's read our passage today with that context in mind, receiving guidance that really is just as needed today. And there's a lot we have to cover, so we're going to get a bit longer than normal, I think, today. Just want to prepare you. And added to that, what are you going to do? You going to fire me? You can't do anything. Okay, so forget that part, but let, let's come to God's word. And as we hear it, remember, this is the word of God. And we read there, let's read in 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, did not believe every spirit. Really, in our case, do not believe every teacher, podcast, influencer, or expert. But instead of that, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. So really, you could say, hold up their teaching to the word of God. Hold up my teaching to the word of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This, not confessing Jesus, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and get ready, is now already in the world. But little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, it is greater than he who is in the world. I want you to hear that again. Let me read that again. But little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, praise God, is greater than he who is in the world. Then verse 5, they, these false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So just pause and catch that for a moment. In light of all that, in light of battling false teachers, heresies, antichrist, church divisions, societal opposition, culture wars, what then is John's most critical summary exhortation to them? Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God 
and knows God. So as we saw last weekend, John again expresses repeatedly, as he does again here in verse 7, and as does Jesus and as the Apostle Paul does, that the central expression of this life with Jesus, even in the face of false teaching and culture wars, is love. Abounding love. So we read, again, in 1 John chapter 3 last week, verse 11, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Look at verse 23. John says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and what are we to do? Love one another. And again, as we saw last week, this kind of abounding love that really is to flow from us and is to mark us distinctly, it is to be a love for one, that comes from the right heart. A first ingredient we pointed to of loving this kind of way is that we love with the right heart. And by that meaning that it's a love that flows from within us, prompted by the Holy Spirit within us, and then just kind of splashes or overflows and all around us. In, in other words, loving with the right heart means our love is indiscriminate, we could say. It's that we don't pick and choose who we act loving towards. Because our love, friends, is to flow to all. So today I want to look at two other ingredients that John and the writers of Scripture say are to mark how we love as we follow Jesus. But before we look at those two other ingredients, I, I just want to take time to address a question that I think comes up as we consider this call on each of us to express abounding love to others. Because here's the thing. As the church, as a body of Christ, I think we hear Scripture's call for us to love and I think we very likely agree with it. Right, for sure, absolutely, it is love. But we often don't live that way. So I think a question is, why the disconnect? Why do we tend to settle for a different kind of living? Because if loving this way if it is, as we've seen multiple times, the first central expression of life with Jesus, why don't we see more evidence of authentic transformation in us into individuals and a community just marked by abounding love? Instead, doesn't it seem that we in the church often get kind of caught up in or focusing on what are actually secondary matters. And by that I'm not referring to kind of critical matters of doctrine or belief, but I'm referring to what really are secondary matters. From holding certain political views to using particular spiritual language or terminology to really requiring or condemning certain behaviors that scripture doesn't even specifically address. Why? does that kind of focus on what might be important but are clearly secondary matters, why does it seem to happen so frequently in the church, in the body of Christ? 
Well, if it's any encouragement, that kind of attitude is evident or present not only in the church and not only today. It was present in Jesus' day also. In fact, the New Testament scholars, James Dunn and John Hoffner, give a very helpful description of what was happening in Judaism and among the rabbis during Jesus' day. Dunn and Hoffner explain this, that in Jesus' day, the great majority of rabbinic writings and teaching focused particularly on three areas of biblical law. Circumcision, dietary law, and Sabbath-keeping. So Dunn asks, why would they have spent the great bulk of their time writing and teaching about that? Because every rabbi knew that that wasn't the heart of the biblical law. Every rabbi knew that the heart of the law was really summarized, for one, in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, where it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Really, this was the central belief, that there is one transcendent, holy, good God. And then added that, if you read down in verse 5, it says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So that's the first element. And then with it, in the Levitical law, it says this. And this is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Added to that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, every rabbi knew that. That's why in Mark chapter 12, this rabbi Jesus is challenged by a Jewish scribe to summarize, really, the biblical law. He's essentially asking, what is most vital to this Jewish faith? And you remember Jesus' response. Jesus' response by quoting, really, these very words from Deuteronomy and Leviticus as the summary and focus of all the Old Testament law. And how, then, does that scribe respond to Jesus, this is how he responds, as recorded in Mark 12, 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, because they all knew it. So he asked the question, so if the rabbis knew that the heart of the law was what Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 speak of, why then would the rabbis spend the vast majority of their time writing and teaching about circumcision, dietary law, and Sabbath-keeping. Well, to explain this, Dunn points to what sociologists call identity markers. I want you to remember this, so just say that, those words with me, would you? Identity markers. And the idea of that is this. All groups of people tend to be exclusive. That's just kind of human nature. So all groups of people tend to want to know who's inside our group and who's outside. Really, who's a member, who's not, who are the sheep, who are the goats, that kind of thing. So all groups tend to adopt, often informally, these identity markers that are very visible and typically fairly superficial practices to kind of set them apart. And again, it could be vocabulary that is used. It could be 
the way you dress, or certain real rules of behavior that all serve to distinguish who's inside our group from who's outside our group. And all groups tend to have these. I mean, for example, one writer gives a couple of great examples. Okay, so for you older baby boomers, for example, let, let's say it's the 1960s, you're driving in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, and somebody pulls up next to you in a Volkswagen van, it's plastered with peace signs, bumper stickers, that say, make love, not war, and, and the driver's wearing kind of granny glasses, has long, stringy hair, bare feet, and there are love beads all over the place. You would know that you were driving next to not a pastor. Who said that? <laughs> no, a hippie. Yeah, the right answer is hippie. Because as anti-establishment as they were, even hippies had their identity markers. Because all groups tend to have these. And really, they can be powerful. And we know about this stuff even when we don't kind of think we do. Because even those who are viewed as nonconformist or rebellious have them. Even bikers have them. Even the hell's angels have them. And you know about this. Like, what's the hell's angels' favorite color? Black. What are the hell's angels' favorite fabric? It is leather. What's the hell's angels' favorite skin ornamentation? It's a tattoo. What's the hell's angels' favorite motorcycle? No, you're right on. How do you have to say it? Not a Honda, not a BMW, a Harley. Because even nonconformist groups have their own identity markers. Okay, so back to Jesus' day. Why was it that the rabbis spent almost all their time focusing on circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping? And it was because... In part, those were their identity markers. That's how they figured out who was on the inside and who was outside. Because for them, the question was, how do we recognize who is a child of Yahweh? Who is of God? Now, we know that Deuteronomy 6, and they knew, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 clearly said, it's by their love for God and their love for others. But that is really hard to do, and it is really hard to measure. So the rabbis essentially decided, okay, so for us, our identity markers are going to be circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. So that's how transformation was being defined. Only it was more about apparent transformation in this. It required no authentic transformation within. So it was really more about being conformed than being transformed. All right, that all makes sense? Okay. Then Jesus comes along. And he has this radically different approach. It gets him into trouble all over the place. So that scribe asked Jesus, what's the Hebrew law all about? What's at the very heart of the law? And Jesus doesn't talk about identity markers. He doesn't talk about kind of boundaries or ritual stuff. He focuses on the heart. And he says, it is this, in line with God's word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor yourself. All the commandments are summed up in those two commandments. 
So when somebody repents and receives forgiveness and orients themselves towards loving God and loving others, they're in the kingdom. So even people who look like they are a million miles away, like prostitutes, tax collectors, but then turn and do that, they are in. And Jesus' disciples eventually understood that. That's why the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, if I, even if I speak with angelic languages, how cool would that be? Or I give away everything I have, but if I'm not loving all that other stuff, it means nothing. And then John, as we saw, puts it even more strongly than that in this letter and explains, if you don't love, you do not know God because our God is love. So if you read through the Gospels, you can start to see why the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, it was almost always about circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping. And it was because Jesus was threatening their understanding of themselves as being insiders. So that's why these conflicts rage so hot in the Gospels. Just read through those books again and you will see it again and again. Now, particular identity markers, they really, not surprisingly, vary from one culture to another, from one century to another. But catch this. Listen. We are called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be transformed into a people of deep, honest, self-sacrificing love. But if people do not experience authentic transformation, empowered by the Spirit, to become more loving, joyful people, if they don't experience authentic transformation, then in time, their spirituality will deteriorate into a search for identity markers. To really prop up their sense of being different from other people, from those outside. And that happens everywhere, everywhere. I am sure we could have a very interesting discussion about this right now. Even those of you who grew up in different churches could talk about what your church's particular identity markers were. And if you experience that, you know that these identity markers can at times be just odd. I mean, like for me growing up, it wasn't circumcision, dietary laws, or Sabbath keeping. It was no dancing, no drinking, no smoking, no swearing, no playing cards. And by that meaning, we could play card games like Rook or Uno with those cards, but we could never use poker cards, even if we weren't playing poker, even if we were playing Go Fish. Now again, none of those things are necessarily bad encouragements apart from not dancing. But they certainly aren't central, are they? So although no one in a church would put it this way, no one would, it essentially comes down to this mindset, as one author puts it. If we can't be authentically transformed and loving, at least we'll be odd. That's pretty much the mindset. But again, what is shouted and echoed throughout this book is this. Friends, the primary marker of Christ's presence and work among his people 
is love. And again, it's not that spiritual gifts or wisdom or faith or generosity or sacrifice are not valued or unimportant. They can all be wonderful expressions of Christ. But without love, Paul tells us they're emptiness. To which, again, we might say, yeah, love, absolutely. But do you think that the main fruit the world sees from us is love? And that's partly why we are taking a few weeks here to just kind of sit in, to reflect on these encouragements, repeated encouragements from John to love. And really to consider together what ingredients are necessary to love in the way that John and Jesus exhort us to love. And these ingredients, I want you to know, they're not unique to me. So last week, we looked at that first ingredient of a right heart. This week, after that very long lead-in, we're going to look at two more ingredients together. All right, a second ingredient that I think Scripture points to, to help us love in this way, our love can abound with the right soil. The right soil. And the soil within which our love grows, it's the soil of experiencing God's amazing grace. Let me put it this way. The person who's most likely to extend forbearing love to others is the person who is aware of their own need of the same. The person who's most likely to extend amazing grace is the person who has received amazing grace themselves, who's been touched by and experienced the love of God for them, who, who has recognized their own fallenness and brokenness and then experienced the unconditional love and forgiveness of the God of creation. Because you cannot give what you do not have. And, and that's why in Luke chapter 7, Jesus there, remember the scene, Jesus is eating dinner in the home of a Pharisee whose name is Simon. And at the dinner, this woman comes in who is known in the city, it says, as a sinner. That likely meaning she was a prostitute. So this prostitute comes in, anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive alabaster ointment, and then she wipes his feet with her hair and her tears. Now, this makes no sense to the Pharisee because, for one, alabaster is very expensive. So this was just kind of a needless spectacle here. It was embarrassing. I mean, what in the world is she thinking? So Jesus then explains this to the Pharisee. This is what Jesus says. This is in Luke chapter 747. Jesus said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who, in his own mind is forgiven little, loves little. He or she, who in their own mind, thinks they're forgiven little, loves little. So Simon could not comprehend the level of this prostitute's gratitude because Simon didn't think he needed much forgiveness. He didn't think he needed, and so he didn't understand the wonder and extravagance of God's forgiveness and grace and love. And again, the people who are most likely to extend abundant love are those who are aware of their own need of it. And the wonder with which it has been poured out on them 
in Jesus Christ. Because you know what happens when sick people are made well? You know what happened when those who recognize their need are forgiven? They come up grateful. And friends, that gratitude, that is the soil within which abounding love grows. Frederick Buechner puts it this way. Although it is true that the church must always dissociate itself from sin, it cannot then fall into the pattern of keeping sinners at a distance. If the church remains self-righteously aloof from failures, irreligious, or sinful people, it cannot be the church. But if we are constantly aware of our own sin, of our own need for grace and forgiveness, perhaps even for being so self-righteous, we can then live in the joyful awareness of receiving God's grace and forgiveness ourselves, and then from that, from that soil, then dispensing that same grace and forgiveness to people around us who need it most. So let's agree on this. What do we say to people like that? What do we say to people who come through our doors with mess or brokenness or fallenness in their lives, who, who really desperately need help, but really aren't doing very well at the moment. I mean, here's what we say. We echo the words of our Savior as he expressed it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28. Because Jesus said, come to me. Every one of you, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So when they come through our doors, we say to them, there's grace for you. If you want it. Because... Every one of us here, we also are ones who are broken, including our senior pastor particularly. But we've received this extravagant, this astounding grace and forgiveness and love of Jesus. So friends, to love the way we are called to love, we need for one, the right heart. A heart that's just indiscriminate, abounding love. And then we need the right soil, the soil of personally receiving and experiencing and recognizing God's amazing grace. And then third, just a third ingredient I want to touch on here. For us to love in this way, we need the right model. And this one should be apparent, because really we've already talked about it. Because our model, it's Jesus himself. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit within us, that enables us to love as he loves. And so let's ask a question what did Jesus model for us? Well, author Brennan Manning puts it this way. One of the great mysteries of the gospel is Jesus' strange attraction to the unattractive. His strange desire for the undesirable. His strange love for the unlovely. The old image of a mean, vindictive God gives way in Jesus to the God of faith who cherishes people all people, and desires to make his abode with them if they will have him. So we do well to remember that Jesus, our model, was called a friend of sinners. As one writer notes, 
It was a day like any other day. The city could have been any city, actually. But on this day, it was Jericho. And the crowds were there as always, and people were pushing and shoving as always. The Pharisees were hovering, watching as always to see what Jesus was doing wrong. And right in the middle of all of that, that's when Jesus spotted him. A short little guy up in a tree, trying desperately to see Jesus. His name was Zacchaeus, and Jesus called out to him. And before anyone knew what was happening, Jesus and Zacchaeus, they're planning a meal together. And in the planning of this meal, the heart of Zacchaeus began to soften. The heart of Zacchaeus grew tender. Because you see, for an Orthodox Jew, the, the sharing of a meal meant far more than just food and drink. It meant authentic friendship. And really, even today, an Orthodox Jew might have coffee and bagel with somebody. But to extend an invitation to dinner in their home, that's to invite that person into the miniature sanctuary of the dining table where we share the wonderful gift of friendship. And that's what Zacchaeus heard. In this exchange with Jesus, who just saw him in a tree, called him by name, Zacchaeus saw somebody who wasn't trying to sell him something, but simply actually wanted to be with him. He wants to be with me. (laughs) The tenderness, the forbearing love of Jesus, it was coming to Zacchaeus. And before long, it was flowing out of Zacchaeus. Because while the Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus had gone to the house of a sinner again, that sinner was turning to Jesus and with newfound tenderness was saying things like, Lord, half of everything I own, I'm going to give to the poor. And to those I've defrauded, I'm going to pay them back four times what I owe them. Jesus never told him to do that stuff. That's just what stirred in his heart. Tenderness, graciousness, loving kindness. That's what happens. That's what flows from those who experience and grasp the untold mercies and grace and love of Jesus. By this, the world will know and will experience that we are followers of Jesus. It's by this, friends. It's by our love. It doesn't require a seminary degree. We simply need, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to check and see, do we have the right heart? Do we have the right soil? And do we have the right model? Jesus, our King. And perhaps do we need to reject some wrong models we've been given in the past? So I want you to think about this. As he did with Zacchaeus, Jesus now invites you to a meal with him because he's here with us through his Holy Spirit. And in this moment, he wants to be with you. And so we come and prepare ourselves to receive from him in this meal. We lift the cup and we break the bread as we have done for two millennia together, asking God our Father, Father, would you cause us to be fed by Jesus in this, to 
experience his love. In this we pray, for we come in faith and ask this in Jesus' name. And so I invite you to take the cup you received as you came in to pull back that very top layer. And if your heart is for Jesus in this moment, whatever your journey's been in the past, whatever you came through these doors with, he longs to express his love to you. So I encourage you to receive from him the body of Jesus broken for you. Let's take and receive. And then with the cup, just pause to reflect on the wonder of his love for you. And if you're wondering about the extent of it, how far would he go for you? You know this. So far that he would pour his blood out for you. So I encourage you to receive from him. Let's drink together. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, again, I, I pray beyond our intellectual abilities or verbal abilities, I pray by work of your spirit, you would cause us to grasp anew the depths and wonder of your love that you've extended to us through your son. Father, I pray even this week in a world that desperately needs authentic love, your divine love, I pray we'd be instruments of your peace this week. Fill us with your spirit as we go from here, I pray, Father, that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus this week, wherever we find ourselves. And it's in his name we ask this. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, friends? So glad you could be here today. Hope you can join here or join in online next week as we continue in the study of this amazing letter together. And if I can give you an encouragement as well, we've been mentioning a lot about the survey that our succession team has put together. Would encourage you to take time to do this. We want to hear from each one of us. So this QR code, we're going to leave it up here. It'll be in the Cardo screens as well. You can just take your phone to it, take seven minutes or so, and do the survey because we want to hear from you in this. Hope you can take time to do that. And so, Joy, let's leave that up there at the end of the service even in the Cardo. And as you go into this week, let me bless you with the words that Paul expressed in Ephesians 3, fittingly for our topic today, because I do pray that you, being rooted and established in love, I pray that you would have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and that you might know this love that surpasses knowledge, and by it be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's walk in that grace. Amen.